You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Our sermon text today is from Acts 9, verses 1 through 20. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, Here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Immediately, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. This is God's Word. Good morning, King's Cross Church. So grateful to be here with you again this morning, and in this text in particular in Acts, as we return back to this series that we took a pause on at the end of last year. As always, I'm Chad, one of the pastors, and grateful for the opportunity to to bring the word this morning. Um, We're going to be in Acts chapter chapter 9, really the entire story that we're going to look at, uh, covering from verse 1 through 31, but I want to invite you to join me this morning in prayer for the Holy Spirit to lead us in this. Uh, Because as we look at this text, what I want to encourage you with is really the kind of Lord Jesus that it shows us, who he is and the work that he does. Um, There are all sorts of opinions about who God is, and there are all sorts of people rejecting different versions of said God. And I'd rather if you walk away this morning rejecting this Lord that you get a more beautiful and clear picture of who he truly is. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for your kindness that we have the opportunity to to look at your word, to um, 
to open up this story of Saul's conversion, to be encouraged, I pray, Lord, by, by what's going on in this text, by the way that you save Saul. And God, also to, to be personally convicted and challenged to remember that that same Jesus who saved Saul continues to save people today. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and make us more like him. And I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So way back in 2005, actually back about the time close to I started to do uh, youth ministry, not early before that, as I date myself, there was a sociologist, Christian Smith, and Melinda Lundquist Denton, who published a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, where they first named and identified something called moralistic therapeutic deism. The book featured a national study done by Christian Smith and his fellow researchers with the National Study of Youth and Religion at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. So actually right down the street is where this research was conducted. Taking a closer look at the religious beliefs held by American teenagers. And from more than 3,000 interviews with American adolescents, the authors identified several core beliefs that characterized the thinking and behaviors of this group. A creed that they refer to as moralistic therapeutic deism. And the creed has these, some of these features. First, that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Two, that this God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. It was a popular worldview among Christian teens about 20 years ago, which says a couple things. First off, it's 20 years ago. And yes, I started doing youth 20 years ago and teaching. But it's also something that has shaped much of the worldview of Americans, especially today. Because those same teens have grown up. Interestingly enough, to see what is an overwhelming surge of people claiming a deconstruction which leads them away from a faith in the Bible. See, they've grown up enculturated by this, and a recent study actually in 2021 put out by Arizona Christian University found that 38% of adults are more likely to embrace elements of moralistic therapeutic deism than any other popular worldview today, including biblical theism, secular humanism, postmodernism, nihilism, Marxism, and Eastern mysticism. Which means it had an effect then, and it continues to have effect today. And it gives a picture, truly, of a God which is not the one, I would argue, and hopefully we see today, is not found in Scripture. It's not the God who saves Saul. Roger Olson, a theologian and professor, says that most atheists have actually rejected a God that he would also reject. And so many of the people in today's culture who have followed after this path or have rejected this path of moralistic, theistic deism are seeing something different from what I would argue we see today in the text in Saul's conversion. That it's not a God who just simply wants a better plan for your life. It's not a God who is altogether disinterested in what you do day after day. He's not a God who just simply wants to make you feel better about yourself. 
It's a God on a mission. And this Jesus Christ is saving people. He comes after Saul, and that's the life-transforming message of God's kingdom that Saul begins to proclaim, and that's Jesus Christ is Lord. That he is both Lord and Christ. It's the same thing in Acts 2 that, that they wanted the Jews to know. Peter says, I want all Jews to know that this Jesus that you crucified is also is now Lord and Christ. It's the message that transformed Saul's life on the way to Damascus. It's the message that Saul immediately began to preach. It's, beloved, it's the message that has transformed your life if you're in Christ. And this is the message that transforms lives today. That Jesus is Lord and Christ. That he came to save his enemies. That he identifies with his people. And he has compassion on their suffering. That he does extraordinary things through our ordinary obedience. And then he gives sight to the blind and brings the dead back to life. So in this text, what I want us to do, we're going to walk through this story of Saul's conversion. And what I want to draw our attention to is four characteristics that we find in here that show us who this Jesus Christ is, who this Lord is, what he's like. Because Jesus himself told his disciples, if you know me, you know the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And it's the same thing that the rest of the church said, that we know better who God truly is because we know Jesus. That he shows us God fully. So what is it that Jesus shows us about God? Well, first, we see that Jesus comes to save his enemies. Look at verses 1 through 4. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and he requested letters uh, from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, that he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Saul, and by the way, I just want to clear this up as well. I'm going to continue to most often call him Saul because that's what the story is calling him here. You may uh, be familiar with him by the name of Paul, and Paul is an author of the majority of the New Testament, at least the epistles, a large percentage. And uh, there's often people talk about Jesus turned, changing his name from Saul to Paul um, for different reasons. I'll just tell you, I don't think the evidence shows that. It seems to me more like it's kind of like Peter is known as Cephas in some areas and Peter and elsewhere. It's kind of a Greek and a Hebrew thing. But regardless, because Jesus never calls him Paul here, he never says he changes his name here, Ananias calls him Paul, Saul here. So I'm going to continue to call him Saul, best I can. If I say Paul, you'll know who I'm talking about, right? Are we on the same page? Maybe Saul, Paul, I'm not perfect. But regardless, Saul has just come off of what, uh, what was Stephen's martyrdom? Stephen was a, a, a deacon, all right? He was one of the first set of deacons. We identified several, several well, it's been a couple months ago now, but uh, several messages ago in Acts. Uh, interesting enough, we're going through a deacon selection process. Uh, martyrdom is not necessarily th- one of the things we put on the table, but it's always a possibility, I guess, for a believer. In this case, Stephen was the first, Okay. So Stephen is is stoned to death, and Saul is at that, and it actually says he's holding the coats essentially for everybody else who's doing the stoning. He's like, oh, let me get that. You you can get a better better throw with that rock if I hold your jacket. Let me get that. That, That's his position in his heart, and it says he was pleased that Stephen was killed. And so now we pick up the story with Saul, and he's continuing on this, this ravaging of the church, if you will. It says he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He talks about this position of his heart elsewhere. He talks about this in Galatians specifically. 
In Galatians 1, 11-13, where Paul says, Saul says, For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin, for I did not receive it from human sources. I was not taught it, but it came by a revelation of Jesus. He's referring to this. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy them. That's what he was going for. He was going for destruction. So what happens on his way to Damascus? He's on his way to look for more believers to bring them into prison, to capture them. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him, falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay, this is the point in which the character of Jesus that we see in this story shows up. Now, he doesn't know it's him. He merely has a voice that comes down out of heaven. But he's on the way to kill Christ's people. And this, this voice says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he does this, coming to Saul, to actually save him. Someone who is outright, vocally, an enemy of his church. Persecuting his people. Persecuting Christ himself. Paul talks about this elsewhere when he writes in his epistles. He often references the fact that he was not worthy of the grace that God showed him, but God met him there and showed him that grace. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 15 and 16, that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him. Saul is an example for us. He considered himself, as he wrote in 1 Corinthians, that he was the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because he persecuted the church. He knew his position before God. He knew that he was not worthy of God's grace. But this is where Jesus meets him. God meets us all differently. I, I don't want us to assume a Damascus Road experience is the norm. If you're someone who does not know Jesus, don't expect to be on your drive home and see a bright light from heaven. That's not a guaranteed and it's not normative. In this particular case, God met Saul where he was in the way that he needed to see him in his glory. He needed a direct smack in the face kind of encounter. Now, I grew up in a home that went to church. Saul was involved heavily in Judaism and was ravenous for it and wanted to destroy this new, what he felt was a cult. Some of you in here may have been graced by that opportunity to be raised up in a home. Maybe you have an extremely what would be considered a boring testimony. You're not someone who is going to get up on a Sunday morning with a cape flying about how Jesus saved you out of death, drugs, rock and roll, or whatever it was that is the hot story, right? I was, I was on a road to destruction, and that's where Christ met me. No, sometimes you're just like, you know what? My parents took me to Sunday school every day or every week, and I just like, Jesus sounded great. I mean, there's a little bit of me that wants my kids to have that kind of a boring testimony. But, but Jesus still does meet people in extraordinary ways. We hear testimonies of, 
in closed countries often where missionaries and the gospel can't penetrate or not allowed to openly operate, where men and women are seeing Jesus in their dreams. And they travel for miles to find a missionary at a place they've never been to because in their dreams, Jesus said, you need to ask this person about me. It's not that God doesn't operate that way. It's just not always normative. But even in America, we hear of stories of a man who's a former atheist turned Christian YouTuber, Beckett Cook. I heard his testimony recently where he shared about randomly going to visit a church just because he saw some people doing a a Bible study in a coffee shop. And in that encounter, in in hearing the message from Romans on that particular day where he said the pastor was preaching hour-long sermons, and then given like half-hour invitations at the end, that he had someone pray for him, and he could not help but feel an overwhelming feelings of the Spirit of God that this was true. So God does work in those ways, and he works with his enemies, but I want to draw our attention to the fact that Saul's conversion is a testimony to the immeasurable grace and mercy that's available in Christ. That a man that is trying to destroy the church actively is met by Jesus and changed dramatically. It lends itself to that statement that says there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And it also informs why we see Paul talking later, like in Ephesians, where he discusses this very thing, almost describing himself. Like in chapter 2, where he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the disobedience. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. He is identifying himself with those believers and saying, remember, that's where God met you. That we were children of wrath. That he recognized that even though he had good intentions, like he's like, I'm fighting for Judaism and the purity of this religion. I'm going to destroy this new sect. That he was working for the enemy. He was opposing God. And then he turns to this in Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. That's the God that met him there. That's the God that wants to meet every believer and transform their life. And that's the God that we still follow. And I need this word because probably like many of you, if you're like me, I sometimes still struggle to trust that Jesus, to believe his forgiveness because I'm so unworthy. That, that the enemy of God, the accuser, he wants to convince us otherwise, doesn't he? That, that when we are in sin or pursuing passions that aren't, we know aren't honoring to the Lord, that there's this temptation towards embarrassment and shame that we even want to think we could hide ourselves from the Lord. You know, when toddlers are starting to to potty train, it's not all of them, but I know some of them, and they get to the stage where they they have to number two. They don't always want to share that they have to number two. And some of them do this really weird thing where you're like, where'd my kid go? 
I'm not going to call out which of my four did this, but, you know. Like, where, where, where's, where's the little one? Well, they'll, they'll hide. Like, like we, they didn't, they would, you'd find them ducked behind a couch and immediately know what they're doing. I mean, they're just soiling their pants, just straight up. They're like, I got to go. I'm going to go back here. And, and I don't know what, what, what motivates it. If it's just embarrassment, if it's shame, like they know mom and dad don't want me to do this, but it's kind of inconvenient to have to go through the whole take the pants off thing. So they will literally go somewhere else and hide and just sit in their own soiled pants. And I think sometimes the temptation for you and I is to run and hide in our sin. And truth be told, to just sit in our old soiled mess. Like whether it's shame or embarrassment, if we don't, if we expect that if we do that, we're not showing our face to God, or if we just don't come to church that day or talk to the other Christians because they might know, or I, I just haven't been good. Or they just don't know what I am or who I am. <laughs> you don't need to clean yourself up to come to the Father. I'm, I encourage my kids all the time, well, just come to me. I would much rather do this ahead of time. See, Jesus Christ has already washed us clean. He died to save his enemies and to bring them into the family. We no longer need to just recoil in shame. He died knowing everything that you would do. And he did it just the same. And so from Saul, we can be encouraged that a God who would come to a person who would literally try to slaughter and destroy his people and still show them mercy has that same abundant and measurable mercy for you and I. It also feeds into the second quality, the work that we see of Jesus. That's as he brings us into the family, he also identifies with his people and has compassion for our suffering. Look again, as he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him, falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? said Saul. Now, this is not Saul necessarily acknowledging that this is God. It's just a, it's a, it's a word of, of reverence. Just imagine that you're smacked on the ground by this huge light. You're probably fearful for your life. You're probably going to be respectful. Uh, who are you, sir? Who is this? That's what he's saying. Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now, that idea from moralistic, therapeutic deism, the term deism there is an idea of a God who is a creator. It's a, it's a popular, there's a lot of people that have this kind of view. He's a creator, but he's not altogether engaged with the world. Not even really truly that interested unless it's an emergency and he's needed for something. Uh, he's, uh, many of the founders, including famously Thomas Jefferson, was someone who would have professed being a deist, that the world was set into motion and all the things that go and go, and God's just watching. He's not here. He doesn't keep it operating to the extent of in involving and invading. But the truth is, in this story, the very opposite is that Jesus jumps right into the story. 
that Jesus shows up. And it's interesting because it seems to almost inform a little of what we see Saul talking about later. In Acts 17, he goes into a space with the Greeks, and he starts to tell them about a God they don't know about, and he describes them in this way, that from one man he made every nationality to live over the whole earth and determine their appointed times and boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Saul knows that God is near. He's not somewhere else, but he's close, and he's by. And in this state, we see that Jesus is close to his God, his own people. He's so close to his people, he literally identifies himself with him. Is Jesus standing in front of Saul with Saul beating him and stoning him? No. But what does Jesus tell him? I'm the one you're persecuting. I'm the one you're doing this to. I'm the one who you are, are, are killing every day who you are seeking out to destroy. I'm the one you're trying to persecute. I'm the one you're trying to throw in prison. And Saul recognizes this closeness that Jesus identifies with his people, and he draws that out into the closeness he often talks about with God's people themselves. If we are also all in Christ, aren't we also members one of another? In Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, Saul says, the prisoner of the Lord, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you received with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Saul knows that we are united in Christ. And Christ is near his people. And he has compassion in their suffering. He sees them and says, why are you persecuting me, Saul? He sees where they are struggling and desires to be with them and to serve them. And by the way, note, he doesn't need us to justify or defend him. He's taking care of this one himself. He walks into the situation with Saul and he takes care of what needs to be done. And he does so on our behalf. And my encouragement to us this morning is to remember that even in our suffering and pain, it's not for nothing. When we struggle, when we, we don't know what's coming around the next corner, when we don't really know what the next day holds, that you have a Savior who is so united and close to you that he identifies with your suffering and doesn't leave you alone to your own demise. But he's a God who is compassionate. And if we pray to him, if we spend time with him, if we trust him, we can know that he will seek our best. So he's not only a God who is is, is compassion, compassionate, who is merciful, who is close, who is near, but he also desires to work through his people. And we see this in verses 10 through 25, where Jesus does the extor- extraordinary through our ordinary obedience. Look at verses 10 through 25. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Ananias is doing great out of the gate, right? He's available. He's like, Lord, I'm here. What do you need? Availability is our first step, guys. And then verse 11, get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man named, from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias, coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. So he gives him some super simple directions. Ananias, 
I got this guy named Saul. I want you to go to him. He heard you're coming. I told him, lay your hands on him, give him some sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Now, I can identify with Ananias here, right? I'm going to be, I'm going to be clarifying. Okay, I heard about this guy. Lord, are you sure this is the one I need to talk to? I hear he's coming here to arrest people. Stephen died. All right, we've been running away from this guy. Are you sure? Maybe you're just, maybe it's Paul. Saul, which, there's a lot of them around here. Which one are you talking about? So he, he definitely questions it, and I think God invites that. I, I really do. I really think that, that God is a big enough God that he is able to take our questions. He doesn't, he doesn't squash Ananias. He just clarifies, no, no, you need to go. I've talked to him. I'm not inviting us to constantly question the Lord, to constantly wait and delay, but I think we have the opportunity here to, to really pursue what is, God's, what is obedience to the Lord and to pursue that. And here Ananias says, are you sure, God? So here we are, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. Now, um, even as I'm encouraging you in this, I want to, uh, to I don't want to say put some guardrails, maybe clarifications. Uh, Ananias is receiving a vision, right? He's leading by God's Spirit to go do this. And I wholly believe, as I've even mentioned, that, that people have seen uh, in, in dreams, they've been, Christ has visited them, I believe that we have been prompted by the Spirit at different times. If you cannot affirm that, you've been in a moment where you feel led by the Spirit to do something. I believe God does work and live and speak to His people. Okay. But there are people who have done horrific things claiming to be led by the Spirit. Okay? Uh, that's why Scripture tells us to test the spirits. Okay. Not every prompting is a prompting from the Holy Spirit just because you say you're a Christian. I have uh, I've actually been uh, known someone who, who left his wife and went to marry the woman he met online because he said the Holy Spirit led him to do so. Okay? Okay. First and foremost, if the Spirit contradicts God's word and his character, that's not the Spirit. Now, clear evidence from Scripture is that the Spirit of God is not going to contradict God's character. So, 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 so that rules those things out. We're encouraged to test the Spirit, but I want to encourage us as well for us to follow His leading at times like this. Ananias, he's, he, he hears from the Lord. He, he sees what God has him to do. And I would encourage you in this way. I, I would wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly believe that the enemies of God will not prompt you to evangelism. They might encourage false gospel that Paul talks about elsewhere throughout his letters. But for, for God to come to Ananias and say, go to this man and open his eyes, because he is going to take the message to the Gentiles and suffer for my name. That is nothing that the enemies of God want to happen. And so what does Ananias do? Ananias went and entered the house he placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road 
you are traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias obeyed. He did what he was supposed to do. Now, I've started this out by saying that uh, Christ does extraordinary work through our ordinary obedience. Now, you might argue with me, and I, I understand, that going to a man who's literally killing members of the church might not just be a simple everyday obedience. Okay. Uh, I, I, I agree. <laughs> um, at the same time, the actions of going down here and following where God is leading him in a simple way just to do what the Lord has asked is something that we can do every day. Because as Ananias obeys God and goes to Saul, at once something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Saul got up and was baptized. And I can identify with 19. After taking some food, regained his strength. It then says in verse 20, immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were astounded and said, isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc for those who called on his name? Isn't this the guy that was literally killing these people who followed Jesus and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? But Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So much so that they attempted to kill him immediately became a target of what he was attempting to do. See, God invites us to his work. It's the kind of God he is. Can God show up with Saul and speak to him? Does Jesus just come and speak to him? That's what we read. Does he come in dreams? That's what we hear. And maybe you can testify to that in your own life. Praise God he still speaks today. But his normal agenda is to work through the obedience of his people. And he does it because, not because he needs us, but because he also wants to change us too. That in our obedience, how, how much effect do you think on Ananias is within his simple obedience to go ahead and trust what God's telling him to do, that he actually, in the Spirit's lead, launches the ministry of Saul? Like, like I'm just going in there and, and praying over this brother Saul that he's never met personally, he's heard of him apparently, that he begins to see the beginning of the work in Saul that as Jesus describes, I've told him all the ways he's going to suffer for my name. And that we hold so many letters that Saul wrote. And Ananias just went and prayed on him, prayed over him. I, this greatly, I believe, influences the way that Saul leads his own ministry. We see an account in later in Acts 16 where, where he talks about being led by the Holy Spirit and being forbidden from going from place to place because he was sensitive to where God was leading and he was wanting to pursue the way that God would direct him. And in 16, verse 6, we see they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia because they had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And then they came to Mycenae, and they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. And passing by uh, Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And during the night, Paul had a vision in which Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. So after that, after he'd seen the vision, they immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia. Why? They concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. He is following the Spirit just as Ananias obeyed God's Spirit 
to come and pray over him. That was the defining mark of his ministry. That the Lord would lead him and he didn't care which direction. That's what's so remarkable. This man who would come to crucify, to kill, to murder God's people is now out there being suffering for Jesus' name. And the reason for that is because this fourth thing we see about Jesus here is that he opens our eyes and he gives us new life. He opens our eyes. Look at the scales fall off. Read that again. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Immediately, while Saul was physically blinded, in, in effect, there is a relation to our spiritual blindness. Truly in the way that we see the scales come off of Saul's eyes, that at this moment and before this when Jesus shows up, that, that Jesus has now revealed to Saul and opened his eyes up to the truth so that he can no longer deny that Jesus Christ is Lord. Instead, he is compelled, as it says here in verse 20, immediately to go begin proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. I, I saw him. He met me. He told me. I know I was here to take prisoners, but I got to tell you, I was wrong. He is the Son of God. So that all the people were astounded. They saw that radical transformation in his life. That they recognized that this man who came to capture followers of Christ as prisoners was instead captured by Christ. He describes himself within his letters as a doulos. Doulos. Am I saying the Greek right? Often translated as a slave. That he is a, a bondservant, one who is willingly a slave of Christ and cannot help but proclaim the message of the gospel. And he talks about this very action that happened. He talks about this later when he is with King Agrippa and he describes what it is that happened, the way that God took his life before this and completely changed him to be a new person that opened his eyes and gave him a new life. The one that these people who heard him in, in uh, Damascus said, this, is this the same guy? Because this is weird. So in Acts 26, he, was, he says this to Agrippa, I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priests. King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. This is some expansion on the stories that Saul provides when he's talking to King Agrippa. I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. It's the exact, it's the exact mission that Jesus gave to Saul, that you're going to go to them so that you might open their eyes and they would turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God and give them new life in him. 
See, darkness and the power of Satan was wielding Saul as a weapon against the early church. This is so amazing. I love this. This is the, this is, this is the, way, this is the way the Lord works. That literally his enemies are wielding Saul as a weapon against the early church, and they sought to crush this movement before the message of freedom and new life in God's kingdom could advance. Okay? They're looking to crush it. It's young. It's fragile. And they're using Saul to do that. But what they meant for evil, God used for good. Saul became Christ's messenger of salvation to those same Gentiles. He brought that message of freedom and that new life throughout the entire area. As, as one of the earliest missionaries we see, that most active, that, that, that the person that the enemy was trying to use to destroy the church rather helped to strengthen the church and build the church and advance God's kingdom. And it's why we see Saul feeling so strongly about it, like in 2 Corinthians 5, when he says we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He carries that message and says we are ambassadors for that. That we need to go about this world speaking that message and, and pleading on Christ's behalf. What? Be reconciled to God. Rather than tearing the church apart, he is reconciling the world to Christ. Saul goes on in Damascus and says that he goes on from there and is, is run out of town because they try to kill him. And, and later on in verse 26, it says that he shows up in Jerusalem where the apostles are. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, he tries to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. Again, like Ananias, we can identify, right? Like, are you sure? This guy's, this is a trick, right? But note Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had, been, had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas had heard about what Saul was doing. Barnabas had heard from others. Barnabas heard his story and he vouched for him with the apostles. He believed that Jesus could change even a man like Saul. Barnabas, who's ever the encourager, Barnabas is the one later that comes to Antioch and is pumped that the Greeks are starting to get the gospel. Barnabas is the one later who even challenges uh, Saul because he doesn't want to give a second chance to, to, to another guy named Mark. Because Barnabas believes that God is big enough to change people's life. And that he believes what he heard about Saul, that Jesus did that with him. And so what, as a result, Barnabas brings him to the apostles, and they and vouch for him, and now we see the apostles accepting, willingly accepting Saul. And Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with Hellenistic Jews. Those are the ones who are of, of more Greek tradition. They're the ones who have lived away from Israel for some period of time. That's why they're referred to as Hellenistic. But they tried to kill him. So when these brothers found out, the apostles, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And what was the result of this? Ananias obeyed. Barnabas believed. God has changed Saul's life. He's a completely different person. He's not capturing Christians. He's been captured by Christ. He's not making prisoners. He is setting people free. 
In verse 31, the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. It grew. It grew where the enemy wanted to destroy it. God, you saw to grow the church, their obedience to him. God is a God who identifies with his people. He is near to them. Jesus has compassion on his people. He saves his enemies. He transforms their lives, and he works through us for extraordinary means. And for all those sayings, Paul writes in Philippians, where we recognize the kind of change that God did in him, he says this in verse 7 and 8 of chapter 3, but everything that was gained to me, all those things I had before, all those things that I, I thought were important to me, all the things that drove me to try to kill the church, he says this, I have considered it to be a loss because of Christ. That, that more than that, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That he denounced all those things for the sake of Christ who met him on that road to Damascus. Just one cool afternoon where he's wanting to go destroy the church. It's my everyday thing. And Jesus completely changes and turns his life upside down. He still does that today. He's still at work today, friends. Brothers and sisters, this idea of this neutered, moralistic, therapeutic, deistic God that has penetrated for a couple of decades and beyond, the belief of this God who is not interested in what you do day after day, he is totally not invested or compassionate or close or near and just wants you to be a better person and love yourself more. It's not the God of the Bible. It's not the Jesus that met Saul on the road to Damascus because the life transforming message of God's kingdom is that Jesus is Lord and Christ he holds all power in all the world and has commanded us to go and make disciples like Saul because why wouldn't you if, if you look at Saul and see that there is nothing else in this world that is worth the value of knowing Christ why wouldn't you want to spread that message and if you're someone who doesn't know that Christ as every week, we want you to meet him. Because Saul met that real Christ on the way to Damascus, and it changed him. It's changed me. I, didn't, I don't have a, I kind of have a boring testimony, but there's radical change. Because I know when you meet him, he changes lives. He changes hearts. He doesn't give you everything you think is important in this world. He doesn't just want you to be a little bit better. He wants you to know the Father and be in the family. And he has compassion on our suffering, even though we live in this world that, man, is falling apart. I know it. We've got random balloons flying overhead that are spying on us. I mean, what is this craziness? It's not a political statement. I'm just saying. I was looking for it. Actually, never, that's a whole other story. Um, it's a crazy world we live in because the enemy is still at work. Because people who are making choices and they choose evil because God's enemies are not gone. They're still at work. They're still trying to use people like Saul to destroy the church. And there are still Sauls out there that Christ wants to save who will strengthen the church, and we will continue to see the kingdom grow because I know my God's bigger than them.
<laughs> and I don't always trust him and believe it. I know I don't. <laughs> My prayer for us is that we remember the Christ that met Saul on that road and that we trust him like Ananias, that we, in the face of even what could be dangerous, we say, I'll believe you and I'll obey. Let's follow after that God because that God is of surpassing value to anything else we could pursue. Father, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your love. And God, even in the mess of who I am, thank you for the fact that your word is still true. Grant us in your grace the clarity and the discernment to hear your word and to know and believe and see and true what is true and to trust you. Not to trust me, not to trust some random person standing up here on a Sunday morning, but God, to trust that you are a God who loves the world you made and desires to see us come to life. Father, thank you for your kindness in Christ to Saul. Thank you for the way in which you worked through him to strengthen the church. And Father, thank you for the way that I know you will work through people in here even today to continue to strengthen the body of Christ, to encourage one another, to love one another, to be obedient to the way your spirit leads us and to lead others into life. Grant us that grace that we would see many come to faith in Christ, many to know this value of knowing Christ that Saul talks about. Grant us the grace and the faith to trust you more and more every day. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.